This is the Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors Podcast, sponsored by Bemidji State University and Northwest Technical College. The Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors Podcast is also sponsored by Visit Bemidji. Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors covers the lakes, woods, trails, wildlife, and anything else going on outdoors in Paul Bunyan's playground. Coming up today on the podcast, take me to the river, or at least the doctor of rivers. Bemidji State University aquatic biologist Dr. Debbie Gelda's specialty is rivers, and that's what we're talking about next. But first, if you love the outdoors and are looking for ways to align your education with future employment in the trades, Northwest Technical College in Bemidji is for you. Explore state-of-the-art technical education in six career paths, automotive, building trades, business, health, childcare, and manufacturing technology. All in the heart of Minnesota's Northwoods, surrounded by more than 400 lakes and, of course, limitless forests. The shortest path to your dream job and a good bite is at NTC, Bemidji's Technical College. Learn more today. Visit ntcmn.edu. Well, today we are talking with Dr. Debbie Gelda. She's a professor of aquatic biology at Bemidji State University. Her specialties are freshwater invertebrates and rivers and streams. And Debbie, welcome to the show. Kev, I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, first of all, let's talk about the fact that you are a professor of aquatic biology at Bemidji State University, the only university in Minnesota that has an aquatic biology major. We're kind of proud of that. We are very proud of that, we have to say. Um, I'm very lucky that we have... What we consider a great program, Dr. Andy Hayes is our lake and fish guy, and Dr. Rick Cook is our wetlands and aquatic uh, plants guy, and I'm the rivers and streams and aquatic invertebrate gal. <laughs> now, the the great thing about, I mean, we're in Minnesota, land of 10,000 lakes. We really should have an aquatic biology program, and here we are at the headwaters of the Mississippi and the Heart of Lakes country, so it's a perfect place. Absolutely. I, there couldn't be any other place on earth that I'd rather be. We talked a little while ago, uh, kind of uh, just discussing the aquatic biology program with you and, and uh, Rick and Andy. But uh, let's review um, some of the things for those who didn't hear it. How did you find your way to Bemidji State University and what got you interested in rivers and invertebrates? That is a lovely question. <laughs> I, I, you probably hear a twang in my voice. I'm a Kentucky girl, uh, born and bred, but I, and I got my doctorate at the University of Louisville, which sits right on the lower Ohio River. So very big water. I fell in love with rivers and invertebrates very quickly. And when it came time for me to get a real job, I started applying to places that had lots of water. And that meant northern Minnesota, the Adirondack Mountains, to some degree California. I came up here um, and knew before I put my suitcase in the back of the car that this is where I wanted to be. (laughs) Wow. Uh, And you haven't uh, changed your mind. I have not. This is my 21st year teaching at BSU, and this is where I will retire. Well, I mean, it's not like uh, you haven't experienced the winter, so. Oh, yes, and we still are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. Well, what about rivers? What What is it about rivers that uh, appeals to you or makes you, interests you? I, I think that's a wonderful question. The thing that really interests me the most about rivers is that they are always, always changing. There's a Greek philosopher somewhere who said you can never step into the same river twice. And I think that's just beautiful. Rivers can change from minute to minute, from day to day, from season to season, and from year to year. They're extremely diverse, much more diverse than lakes are, actually. 
And if you look at the hydrology of the rivers, the organisms that live within the rivers and the structures themselves, they're just very, very unique and always changing. I've, you know, I've noticed there's something truly unique about going up and down a river. I mean, it is different than a lake, as you noted. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a different set of, you know, even the shoreland animals are, are a little bit different and a little bit, uh, you know, unique to the river area. Absolutely. And uh, it's it's just a fun place to be. But one of the reasons, you know, I wanted to talk to you this particular time was we had a really nasty drought last year that, that I don't recall in my lifetime in Minnesota. And I'm just curious as to what we know about it as far as how it's affected rivers, for example. It has been, well, since we've been here for 20-some years, this has definitely been the worst drought we've ever seen. And I can reflect on taking my classes out to the Mississippi River and Turtle Rivers like I normally do every fall, and there wasn't any water. And we had never experienced that at all, and it was very shocking to see. I think what will be best, (laughs) the best thing that could happen is if we just get lots of water and lots of water soon. Yeah, I've heard that from from so many people who are involved in in biology and and rivers and lakes, that that, we just need water. And yes, we had plenty of snow, but as most people know, uh, you know, feats of snow equals a few inches of water. So you need a lot more into the uh, spring and summer this year. Absolutely. And when I think about what the ground is doing right now, the ground is kind of like a dried up sponge. So normally these sponges have water in them and that water makes its way downhill to the rivers. But it's almost like having a dried sponge in your kitchen sink and you turn on the water tap and the water hits the sponge and what does the water do? It splashes all over you and it splashes all over the wall and it splashes all over your sink. And it takes a while for that water to to soak into that sponge. And once it does, then you start having that water move through the sponge and then fall out of the bottom. And that's really what we need to happen. We need to get the water into that soil so that it is absorbing more water to make its way to the river. Well, I, you know, when you look at rivers, you know, on maps and you've got, uh, you know, like the Mississippi and the Nile and the Amazon, these massive uh, rivers that are kind of like the... Uh, uh, you know, the the large arteries of the body, and then you've got the little streams that are down to the little capillary type things. It's like the circulation system of the earth. I couldn't agree more. And what's really interesting is if you start adding all those up together, if you start adding up all of the miles of very small streams and little larger streams and then rivers and then large rivers, in the U.S., we've got about three and a half million miles of moving water or low-tick systems. So rivers and streams. We've got a lot of them in the U.S. And what's really interesting, if you look at global water, if you look at all the water that's on the planet, about 96% of it is, is saline, is ocean water. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to fresh water, it's much, much lower. When it comes to lakes, only about 0.007% of water is fresh. When it comes to rivers... It's 0.0002% is riverine. (laughs) But if you think about how important these rivers are for um, commercial consumption, for human consumption, for navigation of barges, for recreation, they're extremely vital for people and the organisms that live around those systems. So where does all this water that keeps flowing over and over and over again, where does it all come from? 
It just simply, it's all about gravity. It's all about <laughs> gravity. So I ask my students this, what is, what is going to be around the longest, the Mississippi River or the Great Lakes? And invariably, we think the Great Lakes, that's a huge amount of water. Right. But over geologic time, we know that tectonic plates can shift. We know that lakes can change. We know they can dry up. But gravity is always going to exist, and water will always go downhill. So rivers are more permanent than lake systems, even the big ones. Well, we know that if you just go to the Grand Canyon, right? I mean, that's, right. Just, uh, that's just the Colorado River carving right through. Do, doing its thing. And what's interesting about rivers is we, we've done a very, very good job of managing water and controlling it and changing it. And the Colorado River doesn't even dump into the Gulf of Mexico any longer because it's been diverted so much. So many dams for hydroelectric, diversion into uh, Southern California, Las Vegas, and places like that. We've really manipulated water quite a bit. There's something uh, really unique in in folklore worldwide about rivers, right? I mean, uh, from you know the Jordan River, very important uh, yeah. part of the Bible, the Mississippi River, and the romance of the Mississippi River in this nation. I mean, the whole nation is based on what's east and what's west of the Mississippi, and the gateway to the west, and and the stories of the riverboats. I mean, the river, and and that's just our you know Western culture. Correct. It's hugely important to all cultures everywhere. Absolutely. If you think of the Nile River, we think of Nile, the Nile River Valley as being one of the most fertile areas on the planet because that river floods regularly and takes all those nutrients that are found within that river and then deposits those on the soil. If the Nile River didn't flood, there would be no agriculture. Yeah. When we think of the Amazon River, which is on my bucket list to see one of these days, <laughs> of course, the largest river by far and away, the mouth of that river is over 200 miles long. Wow. That's hard to wrap your brain around. Wow. That is hard to wrap your it brain really around. It really is. It truthfully is. And even though we have things such as deltas where rivers dump sediment into the ocean, the, the, I'm sorry, the Amazon River is so powerful that it pushes so much sediment out into the ocean. And then with those Atlantic currents, there's no true delta. We don't have a buildup of sediment just because of the power of that river and the currents of that ocean and how they come together. I, I, you know, I look at, as a Bemidjian, or this area, you know, my whole life, yeah. being over to Itasca any number of times, that very quiet, very mild start to the to a river that even by the time you get to Brainerd is is so much larger and I you know and I haven't seen it you know uh, way down at the other end it's just it's just amazing and hard to comprehend it, it it truly is and I've been lucky enough that I've been up Dietasca absolutely several times but I've also been to New Orleans several times and when we think of the the lower Mississippi River we think of New Orleans New, mm-hmm. or, New Orleans Louisiana but interestingly enough that city is two hundred miles up into the Mississippi. It's that far up. And at that width and depth, aircraft carriers can go up into the Mississippi River, up into New Orleans, 200 miles upriver. And the port of New Orleans, which is fabulously interesting, is one of the most, one of the busiest ports in the U.S. Wow. But one of the things we really don't think a lot about that we kind of should is navigation, how important rivers are as that lifeblood is, as you mentioned, Kev, 
how important rivers are to move to move products from place to place. When we think of dams, there are 90, over 90,000 dams in the United States, which is hard to imagine. And over 8,000 of those are really big ones, higher than 50 foot. And when we think of why do we put dams there, many times people think flood control, not always. A lot of people think hydroelectric power, not that often, only about 2%. The vast majority of dams in the U.S. are either for recreation purposes or for navigation. Barges need about, about nine foot of draft depth in order to go from place to place. And so we build a lot of dams to shore up a lot of water so we can get those barges carrying coal and grain from place to place. We, of course, live in the land of uh, 10,000 lakes, which is actually more than that, of course. And, and uh, 15. We're saying 15,000. <laughs> yeah, 15. Yeah. And, and that's where we live, and that's where we're used to, and that's where we spend the bulk of our recreational time. It, it doesn't occur to us, because where we're at, how many people worldwide, and certainly even in this nation, their recreational waters are rivers, their fishing waters are rivers, their swimming waters are rivers. Um, that just isn't. That just doesn't compute up here. No, I, I absolutely agree, and that's one of the things that I try to get across to the students that I teach, who are also Upper Midwest folks, most of the time, is that we can throw a baseball and hit a lake up here. That is not the fact in most of the nation and most of the world. And that that really does and has, as we've seen, put a lot of pressure on rivers and and the water that's uh, that's rolling down those rivers. It has. It truly has. We have. We've manipulated the water, we've moved it, we've changed it, we've thrown so many dams up that really natural rivers are kind of hard to come by. We sort of need to go out west into some of these these more, these more wilder rivers, we can call more mountainous rivers, before we can see what the systems are really supposed to be like. When we think of how many times we've diverted water or changed it or channelized it or put a dam up for whatever reason, we've fundamentally changed not only the hydrology like the Colorado River that doesn't even make it to the Gulf of Mexico anymore. But we've also changed the organisms that live within that. Now, a lot of folks will say, well, there are fish ladders that will help fish that need to move upstream do that. But are they really successful? And sometimes sometimes these fish ladders are very, very challenging for fish to traverse. When we let water out of a dam for it to move downstream, it's fundamentally colder And so that's going to affect reproduction of the organisms that live within that system. As that water pulls up against the other dam that's downstream, it's going to be stiller and deeper and now warm up. So now we've got temperature changes, transportation challenges, and reproductive effects that really affects the organisms that live there. For those of us who would have that opportunity to get up into those mountains and see, you know, the rivers before they got changed. What's going to shock us the most? What's going to surprise us? I think what is most surprising are how wild those rivers are. And, and in aquatic science, we call it flashy, how flashy the rivers are. We're used to it raining on a Monday, and maybe the rivers will go up by Wednesday or Thursday, right? Mm-hmm. But in these mountainous areas, there's such a steep gradient of that water rushing downstream that it rains on Monday morning and by noon, You've got, you could potentially have a flooding situation. So there's so much water moving downstream. The sediment is rocky. It's violent, and it's aerated and bubbly, and it's just stunning to, to, um, to encounter. 
So my family and I, including Dr. Rick Cook, um, who's my husband, we went out to Yellowstone out west uh, a couple times these past few years. And even though I'm not a fish person, I know I'm not a fish person, I am now officially in love with fly fishing. (laughs) Because fly fishing marries, of course, the invertebrates that I do and rivers together. And to see the invertebrates that are in these natural areas of these very wild rivers and the, the invertebrates that that are there anyway and mimicking your flies because of the invertebrates that are emerging and trying to catch those fish. It's really phenomenal. If you find today's topic fascinating or the topic of aquatic biology in general fascinating, then Bemidji State University is the place you need to look. It's right here in the heart of Paul Bunyan country. It's the only aquatic biology program in the state of Minnesota, and it's state-of-the-art. And while you might spend some time in an actual classroom, as soon as you step out the door, you're on the shore of your real classroom, Lake Bemidji. They've got some high-tech lakeside facilities. They've got tons of research and hands-on education. You can choose fisheries. You can choose aquatic systems like rivers or wetlands in aquatic biology education at Minnesota's premier Northwoods University is definitely the right fit for you. Get more details at BemidjiState.edu. Dr. Debbie Gelda, an aquatic biologist at Bemidji State, is my guest. And we'll have a lot more river talk with her next on the Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors podcast. Hi, this is Dick Beardsley, Bemidji Area Fishing Guide. I'd like to invite you to come to our beautiful town of Bemidji. We've got over 400 lakes in our area teeming with walleye, pike, muskie, bass, and panfish. We're the gateway to the Chippewa National Forest. We've got miles upon miles of biking and hiking trails. Paul Bunyan and Bathe the Blue Ox. Fine shops and eateries in downtown Bemidji. Headwaters of the mighty Mississippi at Itasca State Park. Beautiful resorts, hotels, and bed and breakfasts. Visit Bemidji one step further. It's the PBCO Podcast. We are talking rivers with Bemidji State University aquatic biologist, Dr. Debbie Gelda. We're all about lakes here, but one of the things certainly here in Bemidji, we realize, and I think any number of our lakes, they're pretty reliant on rivers, too. I mean, there's rivers flowing through a good chunk of the lakes here. There's very few freestanding lakes in this area. And that is so unique. That is so incredibly unique. So one of the things we have studied and are studying is, how do those lakes affect the river, and how do the rivers affect the lakes? So if we look at sort of a budget analysis, what comes into that river, or I'm sorry, what comes into that lake, how is that different from what goes out of that lake? Because you're exactly right. We've got these rivers that dissect the lakes all the way down the chain. What are, what are the trick questions that we can say is, well, what is the widest point? What is the widest point of the Mississippi River? It's Lake Winnie. Oh, sure. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, what, what have you determined? Anything important? Anything interesting? It is quite interesting in that depending upon the system, and, and I say that a lot, depending upon the system, because these rivers change all the time, mm-hmm. if there is sufficient flow, we can find that in some cases that river will move right through the river, the river will move right through the lake, and there's really not much of an influence. There's really not much of an influence. But under slower, lower flow, where the discharge is much lower, we see that there is a lake influence to that river as it moved downstream. So if there were less 
zooplankton, for example, if there were less zooplankton in that river as it's coming into that lake, by the time that river leaves the lake, we've got a lot more zooplankton. And those zooplankton are food for larval fish, which are food for bigger fish, and it goes all the way up the food chain. You know, you talked about uh, the, the drought and what you saw even this year with one really bad summer. Sure. And and I don't, you know, I wasn't around and I haven't really studied it, but i got to think um, in the 30s, Dust Bowl days, lot, years of drought, that it had to be just shocking what was going on. I, th- I think it's hard to imagine. It's absolutely just devastating to think what happened in those times of drought. Now, from the river standpoint, there's always going to be gravity. Those rivers are going to fill up. When we have a lot of drought, we have those hard pan soils and we have more likelihood of flooding when we do start having precipitation in that water going downhill. When it comes to the invertebrates that live through it in those very, very low water conditions, they're really hardy. They're going to hunker down. They're going to crawl into the sediment. Many invertebrates have what is called a resting stage that they kind of go into a little bit of a, it's called diapause or a hibernation that they can suspend their animation for a couple weeks or a couple years or a decade until that water comes back. Fish aren't going to be that resilient. The invertebrates are. But hopefully when those invertebrates bounce back up, so will the fish. The, this Now we're going to get into some inside baseball stuff, which I find interesting, but also I can't comprehend at the same time. And that is just how dependent everything is to everything else biologically and, and in a river and in a lake. And, Debbie, it's just you take one thing away and the ripple effects just keep going and going and going and going. Pardon the pun with the ripple effects. I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> You're exactly right, and um, I am so lucky to be here and to work with Rick and to work with Andy, and we can really look at these systems very holistically. We can look at these systems holistically and see how they're changing. And speaking of changing, we really can't talk about anything without talking about the zebra mussel. Right. When I moved up here 20 years ago, zebra mussels weren't north of St. Cloud. Then they were in Brainerd, and they were just discovered here a few years ago. Between the zebra mussels and the drought last year, when we were sampling the Mississippi River right below the power dam, it was like a system that I had never seen before. It had changed that drastically. So many zebra mussels walking on crushed zebra mussels as far as the eye could see and some really horrible images of what they're doing already to our native mussel population. Um, the Mississippi watershed and the Ohio River watershed have the highest diversity of freshwater mussels of anywhere on the planet. We've got people all over the world coming here in our backyard to study freshwater mussels. And those numbers are being decimated because zebra mussels will hang on to anything that is hard. And that means native mussels. So it's going to be very, very interesting and scary in the next few years to see how these zebra mussels affect everything and how they are interconnected. Well, there's so many things that that are impacting so many things, as we mentioned. I mean, just humanity itself, you know, as it develops ideas and creates dams and those types of things, as you you noted, manipulate and change things. Um, We, you know, we hear an awful lot, especially me, who talks to, you know, uh, fisheries biologists and your case today, rivers biologists. And I talk to Rick about wetlands. Um, You know, I hear a lot about climate change and in what 
Is there anything you can say is definitively from climate change as far as rivers that you've seen in the last 10 to 15 years? I can't say that there's been anything specific that we've seen as of yet. Okay. The trend exists. The trend exists, and we're seeing that. We're seeing, and I'll look at this more holistically, we're seeing exotic species that are coming in that we've never seen before that will fundamentally change everything we know about our aquatic systems. We're seeing droughts much more frequently that will fundamentally change everything that we know. We're seeing water levels change. And temperatures, when we think of temperatures, just a degree or two of a temperature change in aquatic systems, and you, you anglers out there know this, is going to absolutely affect spawning times. Those temperature cues are extremely important to start that reproductive cycle. And just a degree or so can really shift what's going to go on in the aquatic systems. Let's um, presume we have another dry season. Oh, I hope not. I, well, I'm with you. But let's, right. for the sake of being negative, let's just say that <laughs> Why we, not? Say we, we do. What, what are we going to see this year uh, that's even more tougher than last year? If we have another drought, um, we're going to see less moving water. We're going to see the lake levels go down. We're going to see temperatures in the lakes go up because of a lower volume of water to be heated up. We might see more algal blooms, more fish kills because of a lack of oxygen. That water moving in and that volume of water being where it should be naturally really is what allows that balance to occur. When we start futzing around with that, with the lack of water coming into the system, water levels decreasing, we start seeing a lot of changes within those systems. Would one wet year get us back to normal? What does it take after a tough year like we just had? I don't know that I know the answer to that specifically. I do not know how many inches of rain it's going to take to fill up what our groundwater level should be. As, As a moderate to severe drought that we did get, I am suspect that one year of heavy rain isn't going to do it because if we have several big heavy rains, what's going to happen? That groundwater groundwater is going to absorb a lot of it, but a lot of it's going to run downhill Mm -hmm. because of that gravity. We need a good year of lots and lots of very slow, gentle precipitation to fill that sponge back up to be normal. Well, now let's talk about me as a fresh-faced 18-year-old who decides it's I want to be an aquatic biologist, and I'm going to take, I'm going to take classes with Dr. Debbie Gelda. Um, what can I? What will I be experiencing, and and what will I be learning? In in the classes that I teach, well, for aquatic biology, for aquatic biology, students will take classes in limnology, the study of lakes, stream and rivers that I teach, wetland ecology, aquatic plants, aquatic algae, freshwater invertebrates, ichthyology, the study of fish, fisheries management. And in all those courses, we really try to not only teach fundamental stuff, cutting-edge stuff, but get our students out in the field with hands-on experiences. That's what we want to do. So in all of our classes, be prepared to get wet. (laughs) Okay. And, you know, um, obviously, education is is a a realm. A lot of people who go into biology, aquatic biology, uh, wildlife biology can all go into um, living here, we know there's lots of DNR offices around here, so that's a, that's a, a realm people can go into. But what other career uh, paths are there for those who go into aquatic biology, and specifically um, something like you study, rivers and streams? Sure. Definitely DNR. DNR, our best friends, we love the DNR. 
besides state agencies, I really, really encourage students to, our students and graduates to start looking at federal agencies. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, fabulous organization that maintains dams, worries about dams, worries about freshwater systems. Uh, we think about NOAA, the National, I have to think about this one, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Association. Fabulous organization there. Also, um, the U.S. Geological Survey. So those federal agencies are really, really, and the Environmental Protection Agency, of course, these federal agencies are really, really uh, have their finger on the pulse of what's going on with these aquatic systems in many different areas. Human health, fish, hydrology, all of that, absolutely. How many students are there in the aquatic biology program right now at Bemidji State? I should know that number, but I <laughs> know that we're, and I don't, but I can say we're busting at the seams, but we welcome more. If, if people are curious, maybe they're going into their senior year in high school and they're thinking this might be a, a realm that they want to study, um, what are some of the classes they need to be taking in high school or would be helpful to be taking in high school before they get to college? Actually, I'm going to give you some surprising answers on that. Okay. Most of these students will probably have maybe some chemistry, maybe some biology, and that's great. Some of the skills that we really would like students to have, and we're seeing that employers are asking us to make sure students have, are things like communication, writing, being able to give speeches, being able to communicate, because a lot of the agencies that we were just talking about, DNR, Army Corps of Engineers, EPA, there's a lot of outreach. There's a lot of communication, whether it be written and verbal. That's very, very important. And, of course, uh, we're getting closer to normal in our day-to-day lives again, and I think there's uh, people can, you know, students can come and, and tour right now and, and see yeah. what's going on over at the university, right? Absolutely, and we welcome them. We meet with students all the time. And, you know, it's really not a hard sales pitch. <laughs> I walk out of the building, and within 15 foot, there's, there's Lake Bemidji. So that's one heck of an office. It is. It is. Absolutely. Uh, Debbie, anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? Kev, I just wanted to thank you so much for being such a supporter of all things environmental, of Bemidji State University, and of aquatic biology. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I appreciate that and love having you on the show. Uh, Thanks for taking the time today. It's Dr. Debbie Gelda. She's a professor of aquatic biology at Bemidji State University, where the finest people come from. And she is a specialist in freshwater invertebrates, rivers, and streams, and will probably have to do one uh, more on the invertebrates at some point. That's a very important of the circle of life. I could talk for days on that one. Okay, well, I'll have to give you a call back. We'll set something up. Pencil me in. Debbie, thanks very much. Thank you, Kev. You've been listening to the Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors podcast, sponsored by Northwest Technical College and Bemidji State University. You can catch the radio show Saturdays on KBUN Sports Radio 104.5 in Bemidji, B93.3 in Brainerd, and Kick FM in Alexandria. And, of course, multiple times a week, we'll have great stuff for you right here on the podcast. The Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors podcast has also been sponsored by Visit Bemidji. Visit Bemidji.